it's an unlikely section of Scripture for New Year's Day. I will warn you of that. I read over this and over this and over this, and I kept saying, really, Lord, could I go somewhere else? And felt constrained to stay right here. So, chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, verse 8. The Lord sends a message against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. And all the people know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. (laughs) Kind of a wetlands mitigation thing. (laughs) No wonder he wouldn't let you out of it. (laughs) Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin. Remember, Rezin is the, uh, the king of, of Syria. And spurs their enemies on, the Aramaeans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws, or literally with the whole mouth. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Yet, the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush. In a single day, the head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. But the fury of the Lord of hosts or by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry. And they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, His anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice, and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Father, as we consider this passage, (laughs) it makes saying Happy New Year a little difficult because it's such serious business. And we have come to learn, Lord, and to understand that those things that happened in former times are for our instruction in these last days. And that we have something to hear 
from these words that you spoke to and against Israel and Judah. We realize this is the stuff of prophecy, some that was immediately fulfilled in the days after Isaiah spoke these words, some that has been fulfilled over time, some, Lord, that will be fulfilled at a later time. Father, we are caught up in these things and in something greater than ourselves, and we pray that we might have the humility tonight to just simply be at Your feet and listen to Your Word and be prepared and nurtured and grown by it. Holy Spirit, this is Your Word, not mine. Please speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems like it was just last year we were talking about a child being born and a son being given. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. What a great section of Scripture. So filled with hope and so joyful and so exciting. Filled with promise and, and prophecy. And on Christmas Eve, we gathered and we read these things and we thought about them. And boy, what a, what a great time and what a great passage of Scripture. But the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10 are pretty grim, as you've just heard. There's a future and a hope, but Isaiah warns Israel, right now it's not looking good. How many of you feel that way, even tonight? It's not looking good. It is not looking good. For all the Christmas and New Year's gatherings, parties, and celebrations, we still have to wake up in this world with this world's problems not to mention our own. It's not looking good. And I was thinking about these things and I recalled Paul's words. He said, he said, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days, the days are evil. Now about a week ago, as I was reading ahead in, in chapter 9 and 10, I was wondering if there wasn't something right here for us today... At first I thought, man, this is just depressing. I'm not sure this is the message I want to give if I'm going to give one on New Year's Day, Lord. this You want us to talk about this. Maybe we should just worship and take communion and, and get on out of here. That really was my intention. And I read over this and thought through it. And as I pondered it, I realized how fitting this chapter truly is for right where we are today. Because as we begin 2012, it's not looking good. It's just not. The global debt crisis game is not over. Just because the ball dropped doesn't mean the dollar's going to rise. <laughs> Europe is hanging on by a slim thread. And anything could cause it to go under. Even China is now struggling under its own financial weight. And as we look around the globe, many economists are warning that America is teetering on the verge of going back into recession. Just when we had such happy festivities to forget about where we really are. The Arab Spring, so-called, has not been a democratic movement, but the results are either a hardening of Islam, as we are seeing in Egypt, or of dictatorial power, as we're seeing in Syria. That's so far been the outcome. Iran, <laughs> proposing a return to the table for talks, but did you also see in the news this morning that they claim to have a rod? They're saying now they've got one, a nuclear rod. But they're saying, let's go back to the table for talks. Remember, these are the people who gave us chess. <laughs> and how are things in America? I'll give you two words, contentious and divided. 
when we look around our country and we're about to head in, oh glory be, to a new presidential election cycle. (laughs) And if you thought it was rough last year, just wait until the contention and the division and the lies and and just the pure politics starts getting spewed out constantly. And I remember Jesus' words when He said, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, as you would expect, around the world, people rang in the new year with great expectations and hope for 2012. An article, I just want to give you a few excerpts from this. The world rings in 2012 and bids goodbye to a rough year. A glittering rainbow of fireworks in the shape of butterflies, hearts, and a cascading waterfall exploded over Sydney's iconic Harbor Bridge on Sunday as cheering revelers welcomed 2012 and bid a weary adieu to a year marred by natural disasters, mass protests, and economic turmoil. More than 1.5 million people crowded onto yachts and along the shores of the city's harbor to watch the shimmering pyrotechnic display that was designed around the theme, Time to Dream. A nod to the eagerness many felt at moving forward after a rough year. It's about giving people the opportunity to dream of the year ahead and that hopefully it is a bit better than the year we've had, said Anurin Coffey, the producer of Sydney's New Year's festivities. Some of the fireworks form the shape of clouds because every cloud has a silver lining, Coffey said. Colorful lights beamed onto the center of the bridge formed an endless rainbow meant to symbolize hope. And many were eager for a fresh start. Now, weren't you? Aren't you? I am. Boy, I I would like to see this better. This year be better than than last year was. I've had enough this year, said 68-year-old Sandra Cameron, who lost nearly everything she owned when her home in Australia's Queensland state was flooded to the ceiling during a cyclone that hit in February last year. It's got to be better than it was last year, she said. For Japan, 2011 was the year the nation was struck by a giant tsunami, an earthquake that left the entire coastline destroyed, nearly 20,000 people dead or missing, and the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in meltdown. At the year's end, many were reflecting on the fragility of life while quietly determined to recover. People in Japan were expected to spend Saturday visiting shrines and temples offering their first prayers for the year. By the way, most of those prayers are not going to Jesus. The giant hanging bells at temples will ring 108 times to purify the world of evil and bring good luck. That's how it works. (laughs) And did you see that Japan was rocked by a 7.0 quake today? No one apparently was hurt, but the buildings moving back and forth and how terrifying for a people who just experienced tsunami. Wandering the streets after that earthquake, wondering, is it going to happen again? In Hong Kong, more than 400,000 people were expected to watch a four-minute, $1 million display of fireworks that will shoot off from 10 skyscrapers lighting up Victoria Harbor. Raymond Lo, a master of feng shui, the Chinese art of arranging objects and choosing dates to improve luck, he said he wasn't surprised that 2011 was such a tumultuous year because it was associated with the natural elements of metal and wood. Oh, see? That's why. <laughs> the year's natural disasters were foreshadowed, Lowe said, because wood, which represents trees in nature, was attacked by metal. Oh. 
See, I don't even need to read the Bible. I can just go right to the newspaper and find the truth. Sorry for my sarcasm. 2012 could be better because it's associated with ocean water, which represents energy and drive and the washing away of old habits, Lowe said. And I'm thinking, yeah, tell that to Japan. If you came tonight looking for a message of hope in the new year, I don't have one for you. In fact, my hope is not in the new year. And it can't be. If I am blindly just hoping that somehow next year is going to be better than last year, I will be sorely disappointed. We all will be. Now, the organization of this part of Isaiah's message now that I've brought you down, is in four strokes or stanzas. Four different, almost choruses, prophetic choruses that Isaiah sings or speaks. And in these four stanzas, each one ends with the same warning. The last part of verse 12 there, you notice, says, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. So there are four stanzas coming along, four warnings, four judgments really, of Israel and Judah coming from the Lord through the mouth of His prophet Isaiah. And at the end of each one, He says, here's the judgment, but it ain't over yet. My hand is still stretched out. More of my wrath is yet to come. So, there's a lack of satisfaction here in the wrath of God even as He is judging His people at this time. Let's read through these. Uh, Stanza number one is the problem of pride. The problem of pride, something we Americans need to spend a little time getting over. The problem of pride, verse 8, the Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace with cedars. How long after the fall of the Twin Towers did it take for people to say, we're going to rebuild? I remember that iconic picture of President Bush standing there with the megaphone saying, we're going to rebuild. And nothing against the president. Nothing against the desire, that that spark of hope in humanity that says when something falls apart, we're going to fix it. We're going to build it up. But the immediate desire to rebuild and overcome after disaster, usually attributed to the human spirit gang, the Lord here attributes it to pride. Instead of immediately saying, we're going to rebuild, we're going to fix it, we're going to make it all right. Sometimes the rebuilding is not the most pressing issue. Sometimes the most pressing issue is repentance. It's pausing. It's saying, what's going on here, Lord? It's turning it back to Him. What do you do when things fall apart in your life? I'll tell you what I do. Naturally, I go straight to the drawing board. How do I make this right? How can I fix this? How can I take what has gotten very messy and pull it back together and make it work? And I just know... There have been many times when the Lord was saying, Rick, just wait. I'm trying to tell you something. Trying to get a message through, but you're so busy drawing out new plans, you're not even hearing what I have to say. Slow up. Foolish pride. Repentance 
and rest is what the Lord prescribes. Isaiah will tell us in chapter 30, verse 15, Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, Gadosh Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then these five haunting words, But you were not willing. You're too busy rebuilding. Repentance and rest. In other words, turn to the Lord and wait on the Lord. Best thing I can tell you, best thing I need to hear myself this year when things are unraveling is stop. Don't try to immediately fix it. Instead, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't know why or how or what you're doing in all this. I don't even know if you caused this or if it's my stupid, foolish humanity, my own sin. But Lord, I want to work this through with you. I want to hear what you have for me here. But again, the human spirit prefers to barrel forward in self-pride. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. Verse 12, the Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws in spite of all this. His anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Notice this. A couple of things here. Though the once great kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, God still sees all of Israel as one. Note that. He still considers the land and the people of the promise as Israel. As he's talking to the people, he speaks to Israel. And it's not just the kingdom of Israel. It is all the people of Israel. And he considers them one even though they at this time had divided themselves. But note this also. Israel's greatest threats at that time are still their greatest threats, at least speaking nationally, today. Did you see that? The Arameans on the east. Well, that's Syria. Same location. The Philistines on the west. Well, Gaza. And the Palestinians. By the way, Newt Gingrich was right. He got in trouble recently for referring to the Palestinians as a, quote, invented people. My friends, they are. Now, they are people... They are people deserving of compassion. They are people that we ought to be praying for. But as a group called the Palestinians before 1964, the name didn't exist when tied just to this people group. What happened in 1964? The Palestinian Liberation Organization was formed by Yasser Arafat, who himself was an Egyptian. And the whole idea of the Palestinian Liberation Organization was to liberate Palestine of the Jews in the charter of the PLO to drive Israel into the sea. Not that there would be a shared two-state solution, but that there there would be a no-state solution. No state for Israel. No state for the Jewish people. We want them out of here. That was Yasser Arafat's whole ploy. And by the way, this concept of the Palestinians as a people was Yasser Arafat's idea. He's the one who began just after 64 to say, oh, we're actually, we are the ancient Philistines. So this is our land because we preceded Israel. You Bible students know the ancient Philistines were European, not Arabic. They were a maritime people sailing across from Greece, settling on the west coast of the land. 
invading the land. They were the arch enemies of Israel. But I'll tell you this much. Though the Palestinians are literally an invented people, the truth is that they fit the bill, at least those in leadership and those in terror, Hamas, they fit the bill of the Philistines because they are in that territory, Gaza, and they are bent on the destruction of Israel. So we have Syria to the east, we have Gaza and the Palestinians to the west, we have Israel in the middle, and of course then the entire, the entire Middle East around them, which is all, for the most part, Arabic. Strobe number two. Not only the problem of pride, but the lure of the leaders. Verse 13. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. And that's the problem. That's the issue. Everything's gone wrong for Israel, the Lord says, and you're talking about rebuilding. You have not turned back to me. And it's not the ingenuity of man, gang, that overcomes global or national or environmental issues. We're not going to fix things by our own smarts. It is the Lord of hosts that we must seek. And that goes, by the way, again, for personal life as well as for national life. If you are in the midst of a mess, if you want to fix things in your life, stop fixing and start praying. Just turn to the Lord. I had the weirdest experience last night. I, I didn't really even know what was going on. I think I was just exhausted. But I'm lying in bed. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was being absolutely bombarded by negative thoughts. I mean, just bam, 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 bam. I just couldn't. I, was, I literally felt overwhelmed, under attack, if you will. And laying there, and the only thing I could think to do was say, Jesus, you got to take hold of this. These things going through my brain. Lord Jesus, help me. And I, I kid you not, I laid there praying for probably half an hour. And it wasn't until I began to turn to Him that the thoughts began to ease up and I started just to realize I need rest and I started praying for rest and the next thing I knew, I woke up this morning and I don't even remember what the negative thoughts were. I just remember they weren't very good. Praise the Lord. We turn to Him. We don't try to make it work ourselves. Jeremiah 29.11, that classic verse, the Lord says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And by the way, that promise is first to Israel. And I believe a promise that is still in play. Verse 14, So, because they do not turn back to Him, the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel both the palm branch and the bulrush in a single day. It says, The head is the elder and the honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Why are, why are the prophets the tail? Because sometimes it's the tail that wags the dog. And these prophets, these false prophets, were trying to wag Israel. They were coming in and they were saying, everything's going to be fine. It's okay. The temple's still there. It's going to stand. As long as the temple's there, we're fine. Just stick close to the temple. It's going to stand. 
Everything will be okay. And that's what the people wanted to hear, so they flocked to the false prophets, and the prophets like Isaiah, they did not want to hear. I understand that. As I said earlier, this is not the message I want to hear on New Year's Day, Lord. I don't want to go into the place of the negative. And Isaiah, this was all he could do was speak the negative because the people were so rebellious at that time against the Lord. And so he preached and he stuck with it while the people raced and ran to the false prophets. How like that is our country today. People want to hear what they want to hear. People want their ears tickled. Give me something light and easy. You know, buttered toast and let me be on my way. Instead of being in the Word and hearing what the Lord truly has to say. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. Why not, Lord? Because they don't. You're not going to have pity on your orphans and widows? I'll show you what you're doing. I won't either. Of course, there's more to it than that. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. This is tough. Because the Lord's pity has always been for the orphan and the widow. You can find it throughout Scripture. In fact, James even says that's real worship. is to care for the orphans and the widows. That's your true spiritual act of worship right there. So what's happening here? Gang, even the fatherless and the widow are following all of this ungodly teaching and the Lord is withdrawing grace across the board. No one is going to have my grace. Everybody is going to face the same disaster that's coming. By the way, Just because someone happens to fit in the category of the orphan or the widow doesn't mean they have a special exemption from sin. And don't forget that. People in poverty are sinners too. Whether it's the 1% or the 99%, we're all sinners. And there's truly no difference. We all need Jesus. The most poor among us need the blood covering of Jesus Christ to be saved. The richest among us are not going to be able to buy their way into the white uh, into heaven. <laughs> just because life has been hard, please hear me. Just because life has been hard doesn't mean you get a free pass. Oh, but but Lord, but I came out of all this stuff. I had a rough time down there, and you're not going to let me in. Do you know Jesus? Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We all need forgiveness. We all need Jesus. But the liars and the flatterers are the ones who teach otherwise. The liars and the flatterers? Yeah. The Hebrew word for godless there in verse 17 is chonef, and it literally is hypocrite or more often a flatterer. A flatterer. Flattery is simply speaking a word to gain advantage. And that's what these false prophets were doing. And that's what the leaders were doing. And that's what everyone who wasn't listening to the Lord was doing. Just flattering to gain advantage. Proverbs 29, verse 5 tells us a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Watch out. 
Someone's coming along and constantly just, you know, blowing smoke, saying all this stuff. And I'm not talking about biblical encouragement. You know, bearing up a brother or a sister. I'm talking about someone who's just, it's kind of vain flattery. You know the difference. You hear it and you go, what does that person want? Yeah. <laughs> Romans 16, 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And Paul says in contrast, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, We never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. But we prove, verse 7, to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And that was lacking in Israel. Leaders who would tenderly care for the children. Who would nurse the people on the truth of God's Word. It wasn't happening. Verse 18, stroke number 3. Verse 18, For wickedness burns like a fire, consumes briars and thorns, that even sets the thickets of the forest aflame, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but are still hungry. They eat on the left But they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. And his hand is still stretched out. Are you picking up what Isaiah is putting down in this passage? In this stanza? It's the glut of greed. Strophe number three is the glut of greed. The people are so greedy at this point. And careful... Don't blame Israel. They are just like we are. The glut of greed. And it's eating the people up. What is? Their own greed. Imagine this. You're at a New Year's Eve party and you're hungrily scarfing down New Year's Eve snacks in your hand. And it's so good, you begin licking your fingers. And that's so good, you ask for a knife and slice off your hand and just keep eating finger food. That's what he's describing here. He's saying, you are so greedy, when you get done with the food, you just keep going. And then when that one's gone, when you're just a stub on the right, go to the left. And you're eating that. And you're chowing down on your own flesh. I mean, talk about a handout. You know, it's just not good. But the picture, (laughs) the picture is talking about the people, listen, the people devouring each other for their own gain. This is what he's saying. Ephraim's eating up Manasseh. They don't care about Manasseh. Their own brothers. And Manasseh, they're eating up Ephraim because they don't care about their own brothers. And both are eating up Judah because they don't care about their own brothers. Everybody is so greedy. They're so self-absorbed. And it is a sad commentary on where all this had gone in Israel. How about the church? May we, as believers in Jesus Christ, never forget what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 12, that God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with them. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with them. Let's not eat our hands. Let's use our hands for brothers and sisters. Let's bear one another up. And let's love each other even more than we would love our own selves. But Israel was divided. 
So personal gain overrode family ties. Strophe number four. The last one. The injustice system. The injustice system. Verse one. Woe to those who enact evil statutes. Wow. (laughs) I would like to just send that verse over to the halls of Congress, to our judicial, to our judiciary. In fact, I'd like to send that to every judge in America. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. So as to deprive, here's what's unjust, to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? Or from from afar there doesn't mean necessarily just distance geographically, but it also can mean distance in terms of time. We'll talk about this more on Wednesday, but there is indication in these prophecies that it happened then, a dual nature. It happened then, but he's also speaking down the road of the coming tribulation. We'll talk about that Wednesday night. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. In Matthew 23, verse 14, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites for devouring widows' houses. For the, and at the same time, lifting up pretentious prayers to look so religious and so holy. You know, this, this whole idea of doing the right thing, even if it hurts people, is the wrong thing. Okay, see, in, in the reality of, of spiritual truth, in God's reality, the right thing doesn't hurt people. The right thing doesn't gut people. The right thing is always something you can do in love. It always is something that flows side by side with grace. And if I'm going to be wrong in any direction, if I'm going to err, let's err to the side of grace. Okay? Let's pursue righteousness, but I'll tell you what, I want to pursue righteousness first and foremost for myself. And I want to encourage brothers and sisters in righteousness, but we've got to do so in grace. Because that's what the Lord did for us. Our country was founded on the justice on the just system of the Ten Commandments. You all know that. That's, that's history. And our system is getting so far from it. You know how many laws were enacted this year? You ready for this one? 40,000. 40,000 new laws in America enacted this year. I, yeah, I know. I read that and went, what? Really? I think most of them had to do with wetlands mitigation. But... <laughs> This is where we are. We are regulating ourselves to death. Law and regulation, because that's what we need. We need more of that, because we need more... You know, we need to get back to the truth. We need to just walk in the truth. And you can mark this as spiritual truth. You can lay this one down. This This is as real as gravity. Any political or justice or financial system that fails to consider and to care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan will fail. Ultimately, it will fail. 
It may take a couple hundred years. It may take longer. It may take less. But where those who are most in need are pushed aside, the system will fail. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm for the welfare state. In fact, I think that does more harm. I think that hurts the poor. But what I'm talking about here is the Bible teaches we have a responsibility to roll up our sleeves and care for those who have less than we ourselves have. That's what God teaches us. Back to the corrupt judges and the lawmakers in Israel, God asks this question, what are you going to do when all your greed and corruption and taking advantage of others, what are you going to do when it doesn't work anymore? What are you going to do when the euro fails? When the dollar bites the dust? What are you going to do when all of your savings and everything that you you know you built up and you work hard and you got all this money set aside, what are you going to do when that is no longer viable? It's a stunning reminder again that we are all in the same boat. There's no class system with the Lord. There's no rich or poor or middle class. You see, with the Lord at the cross, we're all on equal footing. And we all have the same need. The blood of Jesus. This is, again, a prophecy of immediate judgment on Israel, but like so many prophecies, it has a dual nature. And it points to a coming judgment. And it's a judgment that is for this entire world unless we would turn to the Lord. I chose to go ahead and talk about this today, January 1st, 2012, because I believe the Lord would give us a sober reminder of just two things. Just two things, and and we're done tonight. Number one, He said it four times, I hope you didn't miss it, His anger does not turn away. What do you mean, Rick? He's not missing the lawlessness. He's not oblivious to the wickedness to the love growing cold on this planet. It's not that pride and corruption and godless leadership are somehow getting on and and he's just busy over here so he's not seeing it all happening. His anger, gang, does not turn away. He sees it all. He is not missing a trick. Paul said in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And mark this, His wrath will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. It will be. And it doesn't take you or me as Christians to stand on the street corner and say, the world's going to hell! You know? (laughs) The truth is, the world... It's going to hell. What are we going to do about that? What would would God have us do about that? Because, you know, His anger does not turn away, and yet His grace in Jesus Christ does not fail. And that's, that's what we have. That is what we have in our arsenal. This is what God has given us. The Isaiahs of this world, this is the message we have for this world. This is our prophecy. His grace is for you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's our message. His anger does not turn away against sin and unrighteousness and against all of the harm done to those who are impoverished. But I'll tell you what, His grace is right there. In fact, His grace precedes it. Goes before it, if you will. 
The promise precedes the punishment. What do you mean? Look back at verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on His shoulders. Hallelujah. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Yeah, Rick, we read that last week. Exactly. That's my point. We read that last week, and this is this week. We read that first. And as you read through Isaiah 9 and 10, you go, oh man, there's so much depressing stuff here. Don't forget where we started. The child. The child is given. Born to us. The Son is given to us. Grace comes first. Grace is available. Grace is immediate. The love of God is outstretched to anybody who would call upon His name right now. And the judgment, the anger, it's not going away. It is still there. But for those who would call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Amen? Amen. Are you eager to preach the Gospel this year? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, For my part, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. I want to challenge each and every one of you, right here, right now, one person this year. Take the Gospel to one person this year. See if you might save one person in 2012, so long as the Lord allows time to roll on. Tonight, when you go home, who is the one person you know who doesn't know Jesus, who right now all they have is the wrath of God? That's what's coming. Who's the one? Would you double and redouble your prayers for that person? Would you finally get over the timidity and speak the name of Jesus to them? If every one of us, just here in the barn tonight, if every one of us brought the Gospel to one person this year, how marvelous would that be? We'd have to have two services next New Year's Day that fell on a Sunday. You know what I mean. And you know my heart is not to fill this barn to overflowing so we can say, look at what we did. Now that's the problem of pride. And so people might be saved. Let's live for the salvation of the lost. You know, because truly right now in the world, the lost are the most poor of all people alive. It's not looking good this year. Unless you're looking at Jesus. And then it looks really good because our hope is in the Son given. Our hope is in the King coming. Let's all stand up together. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, make it tonight. Make it truly a new year, a year of rebirth. Give your life to Jesus. Let's bow. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, not that it's just another new year, not that there's still you know, confetti in our hair from last night or 
hope and promise of not having a clue what is coming this year. Father, our hope is in Jesus and in the promises that You have given. And I pray, Lord, that You would invigorate us, body, mind, and spirit, to be at work for You, to be pouring out our lives for You, for the sake of the kingdom this year. May everything we do be compelled by the love of Christ. And Lord, if there is anyone here tonight who has not believed in Jesus or given themselves to Him, Lord, would You just grab hold of their their soul and save them. And if that's You, I invite You to pray with me right now to give Your life to Jesus. Just say to Him in Your heart, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need Your salvation. I want to be saved by You. And I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe You went to the cross for me. I believe that You resurrected from the grave. And I pray that I might belong to You from this day forward. In Jesus' name.